Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. Hey everyone, and um, welcome back to the Yikes Podcast, the podcast about all those things that can make us yikes and feel overwhelmed. Um, but instead, we want to lean into those issues, we want to inspire ourselves to take action and be active citizens. Um, so whether it's topics of refugee rights and injustices, whether it's different oppressive systems, anti-racism, the climate crisis and climate justice, um, these are the kind of topics that Yikes goes into. And today's episode is so exciting. So exciting. We are so honoured and just like, oh, we can't wait to share this episode with you. We um, did an interview with the wonderful and incredible Lady of Saad and um, yeah, Michaela is going to introduce her. So if somehow you don't know who Leila Saad is, if you've been Where have you wrong, been? Um, Leila um, is the New York Times bestselling author of the groundbreaking book, Me and White Supremacy the host of the Good Ancestor podcast, which I was on the most recent episode of, and the founder of the Good Ancestor Academy. So the Me and White Supremacy book is an anti-racism workbook that um, Leila will explain herself during this episode. Um, Leila Saad is someone whose work Joe and I have both respected for so long and who is just an incredible human in so many different ways. And we were so excited to be having this conversation with her. And the conversation itself was just deeply deeply moving and it just felt like this like almost spiritual experience um yeah. in a way that so many things felt really intimate and personal and i'm just so excited for you all to listen um we hope you enjoy and um yeah just with further ado i guess get let's get into it <laughs> I guess, Leila Saad, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to to be here. And, you know, I just had the chance to be in conversation with you, Michaela, for our podcast. So mm. it's so great to be back in conversation and to meet Joe as well. And to just, yeah, I know it's going to be great. Yeah, I, I loved that episode so much. Like that was my favorite interview ever um everyone who's listening go and listen to the good ancestor episode it feels weird to like promo an episode that I was being interviewed <laughs> on, but obviously that's what you have to do I'm just so awkward at self-promo but um I love that conversation it was my favorite interview ever um before we started recording I was actually saying to Joe that um like my mum cried my grandma cried mm-hmm. my dad got emotional like they were really moved by it um and yeah it was just it was just so lovely and being in conversation with you was just like such an honor and you're just such a lovely person oh, and we're so glad that you're on the podcast you. Thank you. Did they listen to it? Did they listen to it? Did they enjoy it? Yeah, I think it was my um, grandma's Bless. first ever podcast that she's listened to. Aww. So she doesn't, because I don't think she know. Uh, maybe she's listened to my podcast. I'm not actually sure. But my mom sent it to her being like, you get mentioned in this, like, like, mom, you should listen to this. Um, and she's in Jamaica and she doesn't, she's not very good with tech. Um, and she listened and sent me a text after being like, I hope you know how proud I am Aww. of you. Like, she was so, so sweet. And my mom, like, was really got emotional. My dad got emotional when they listened to it. Um, they all really, really loved it. Um, I love so, that. Yeah, it was a big, it was a big thing in my family, actually. Like, I think it's because it's the first time I've really spoken about, like, the impact my family has had on me as well. Right. Um, and they were really, um, 
moved to hear me say oh, these things and, and it showed me, so me that happy. I should say it to them more <laughs> it was so beautiful to listen to like as obviously also an outsider and having listened to your podcast later for like so long and then hearing my best friend on it and I was just like ah this is so beautiful yeah mm. well you know she's she spoke so so beautifully about you Joe as well and I was like I really want to meet this Joe like she sounds like an amazing <laughs> friend <laughs> well she really she really is and also Joe you're saying that your last um event that you went to before lockdown was Layla's book um yes oh event. wow yeah. yeah yeah um last year you were in Edinburgh yes. um and you um, were there bookshops yes and I got your book and oh, it was wow. so beautiful because last year I really really got into Octavia E. Butler's mm -hmm. books and obviously you've quoted them a lot and also in your work and I don't know it was just it felt so like kind of circle and just yeah. like everything was kind of You know, just, and yeah, it was almost a year ago, I guess, that I went yes. to the event. And so now it feels just like, kind of like a flashback, but also new beginnings. And yeah, it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. You've had a huge impact on, on my life and so many other people that I know. So it feels like an honor to actually chat to you. And yeah, really excited. I love that. So, thank you. I loved it. I, I was, <laughs> I only got to be in Edinburgh for a day or for, mm. you know, overnight. And I was like, I have to come back here. I mean, this place is amazing. Like I want to bring my husband and my kids here. And it's, yeah. it's so beautiful. And the people were amazing. Um, so I'm so glad you were there. That's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish I wish I'd gone because I remember I was meant I meant to go and then I was mm. like did uni work instead oh, how sad <laughs> <laughs> because like because this was pre-pandemic where I was like you know th there'll be another opportunity right yeah. and now a year later yeah. and I'm like I should have gone to one of those Lighthouse Bookshop <laughs> events. I'm um, also plugging Lighthouse because they're the best bookshop ever in Edinburgh. Um, I we love, love that bookshop. I, yeah, I got to spend some time in there. I bought some books in there um, and was like, I will come back. I will for sure come back to this bookshop. It's it's amazing. And the the team there are just, are so great. Um, One thing I'd really like to ask you about, Leila, um, because obviously a lot of people have read um your book, Me and White Supremacy, and... um. Um, actually, do you mind just speaking quickly on like what your book is, if anyone hasn't heard of it yeah. and kind of how you came to creating it in the first place? Sure. So Me and White Supremacy is a, what do you call it? Like an anti-racist an anti workbook, a book for people who have white privilege, who want to do the work of self-interrogation to understand their privilege as people who are white or who are seen as white. Um, how white supremacy is something that is a part of their lives, especially if they don't think it is, especially if they see themselves as not racist, especially as they, if they see themselves as one of the good ones, quote unquote. Mm. Um, it's a book that walks them through understanding how white supremacy is a part of our daily lives and how it is operating um, on a personal level. There's a lot of really incredible books that speak to racism from a historical standpoint. There are great books that speak about it through memoir, um, amazing books that speak about it through science, right? And, and the institutional changes that need to be made. This book is specifically a personal workbook. It's a book for turning within and looking at throughout my life, from when I was a little kid all the way up to now, how has white supremacy been a part of my life? And It began as an Instagram challenge that I ran in 2018. Um, 
uh, I ran it for free uh, online. It was, uh, yeah, weird. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> thinking back, thinking back, intense. right? Because it was intense, right? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't something that, when I say weird, what I mean is it wasn't something that I planned to do. It was something mm. the night before that I was laying in bed thinking about um, how the the kind of uh, followers that I had on Instagram who'd been following me for a while had really shifted their understanding of white supremacy. Those who were white mm -hmm. had really shifted their understanding of that white supremacy wasn't like those bad people who wear, um, you know, uh, cloaks and and who who are seen mm -hmm. as the you know the, the violent racists, but actually even they, even the people who self-identify as progressive or liberal or whatever that, you know, spiritual, um, that mm -hmm. is actually a part of their lives too. And, and they have racist thoughts and beliefs and behaviors. Mm. They had shifted in their understanding, had become more accepting of that truth. Um, and so I was wondering one night, you know, what have they learned about themselves and, and white supremacy that makes it easier for me to have the conversation with them about white supremacy? So I started, mm -hmm. list, you know, I started writing what I thought was going to be an Instagram post asking that question. Um, but when I started to think about what is white supremacy, it just felt so big. Like it just felt like such a big question to ask. Um, and so I started breaking down what is white supremacy? How have I seen it show up in, in those personal ways? And suddenly I had all of these, you know, dozens of prompts, dozens of ways that um, white supremacy shows up and, uh, decided that night to turn it into an Instagram challenge that I would run the very next day. Um, so there was no like, wow. yeah, there was no like registration system or anything like that. It was, mm. if you follow me on Instagram, I'm going to post something each day about a different aspect of white supremacy. And then I'm going to invite you to journal in the comments about what you have learned about yourself and, and white supremacy. And, you know, because it wasn't something that I had pre-planned, because it was something that I was very much guided to do. Um, mm. That's why I didn't have any sort of, uh, you know, uh, boundary of how people could participate in it. But also mm. I didn't foresee what it would become. Um, mm. I couldn't have foreseen. I mean, I, I remember started out, starting out and I had 19,000 followers on Instagram, which isn't a small amount, right? Like that's, that's mm. a sizable amount. But by the time we'd finished, um, 28 days later, a month later, um, that number had more than doubled. And it was like wow. every day people were coming and joining it in this challenge of me and white supremacy. Um, so after I finished the Instagram challenge, you know, realized people really wanted to continue engaging with the work. And so I turned it, I, I wrote it up as a workbook. I expanded it. I took the same sort of 28 days, expanded it, turned it into a workbook, self-published it as a free digital workbook. And again, mm. it just caught fire. And like within three days, more than 11,000 people had downloaded it. Um, wow. It was incredible. And within, you know, six months, almost 100,000 people had downloaded it. So from there, it was like, okay, this needs to reach even more people. And that's how it became mm. a, a published book. Um, so it's been, it's been quite a ride, you know, it started, mm. like I said, as just this thought one night um, that I then said, okay, I'm going to walk people through this over the course of a month and thinking that was going to be it. Um, mm. Then writing the digital workbook and thinking that was going to be it. Um, and now having this published book and seeing, um, you know, 
it, it's just it's reaching so many people. It's also reaching so many companies, um, mm. schools and educational institutions, nonprofits. I mean, you name it, basically, people are engaging and doing the work. So that's that's what it's about. That is wow. amazing. And also, I do think that a lot of the time, the best ideas come in the middle of the night <laughs> when Absolutely. you're just falling asleep and the ones that you aren't that planned and it just suddenly comes mm. to you. And then yeah. just kind of like trusting in that a lot of the time is usually the the right thing or the the better thing and that is amazing that journey of it literally yeah. just being a kind of a, a, an idea that just exploded and kept exploding more right. and more and kept expanding yeah. and like reaching so many spaces because like I feel like your book has played a big part in my life in the way that I talk about your book all the time <laughs> to everyone as as we've talked about before as you said that I was the meme of Bernie Sanders saying right. I'm once again <laughs> asking you to buy me a white supremacy I find that especially um in a lot of the spaces that I navigate like um especially in medical spaces I find it's really great that I can be like hey a lot of you aren't even at like the first level of understanding like mm. a lot of these things here's something that can be accessible but will also be a deep dive um, and will also kind of have an accountability attached to it in the way that you have to keep doing it and making it a habit um and that's something that's a reason why like i really think that your work is is so important and your book is so important and it's the book that i recommend to people um Thank to you. Start the work. I yeah. so appreciate you constantly sharing it. And you're so right in what you said about it's for many people, um, it's a starting point. It's like this is if you want to understand, because so many so often people hear you need to do the work, you need to do the work, and they're not really sure what that means. Um mm -hmm. and oftentimes I think it I think that people think it means you need to post something on social media. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like that's doing the work. And that's, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's not the work, right? To me, mm -hmm. a part of the work and an important part of the work is the self-interrogation and the inner work mm -hmm. of understanding how white supremacy is you too. And um, I think it gives people an understanding that you may not be able to change, um, you, may, you may not be able to make systemic change just you, but you can begin mm -hmm. within yourself. And as you begin doing the work within yourself, there's these ripples of change that happen, that it begins to change the way you have conversations with your friends, with your family members, with your peers, coworkers, um, and so on and so forth. And each one of us then begins to contribute to change in that way. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. one of the biggest examples, I think, for that uh, of that for me is during when we did the I think when we did the Instagram challenge or when it was the workbook, somebody who works for a very large um, international nonprofit um, did, did, did the work. You know, they joined in, I think they joined in the Instagram challenge itself. And when they finished, they decided to write a blog post about it for that nonprofit's um, global uh, intranet. And so as a result of that, you know, many of her co-workers from around the world were like, uh, how do I get a hold of this book? Like, I want to, I want to do the work. I want to mm. do the work. And this is mm. a space within which, you know, there is a history of white saviorism through things like voluntourism. There is, there is this, um, like remnants of colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have m many, many, 
um, white employees and volunteers going into black and brown countries to do work which um, from an intention point of view is is to do good, right? But from an impact point of view, when you have people going into these spaces and they haven't interrogated like their own sense of white superiority and their own sense of, I know better than you what's best for you, black and brown people, that they can do incredible harm. And so you had this one person who decided to do the work herself. You know, nobody asked her to do it. She wanted to do it decided to write a blog post about it for the intranet that led to many of her coworkers from around the world saying, I want to do the work. And then from a company point of view, they um, got many, many copies. I think over a hundred copies of the book we'd printed at the time. It was before the book came out, but we had physical copies of the workbook and we had, a, we'd, we had a lot left over. So we sent them like a hundred copies and all of them were gone. Everyone requested one. <laughs> Wow. Right. So it's like that changes things, right? That the actions mm. of one person can change mm. many, many, many people. Um, and that's mm. what always inspires me about this work is that you don't have to feel powerless and you don't have to feel like, who am I to be able to make change? Just you, the change you make within yourself and how that's going to impact the people you interact with is huge within itself. But then also, if you were to speak out and say, hey, I want to bring you into this, I, I, I think this is something that we can do together, that creates even more ripples of change. And I think that's, I think that's really important. Wow, that's, that's super inspiring to hear. I mean, I guess it speaks also to your testimony that, you know, you, you're so dedicated to change that you've, I'm sure you've brought like hours and hours of dedication and time and mental space and exhaustion and all of it into creating the free resources and then the book and you know having now interactions with with people like us about still this work and um you know carrying this work constantly and mm. um i i definitely remember um at the event you were speaking and you were like um you said that um you can really tell when people read the book and when they did the book yes. and i remember that so clearly of um, you know, as I mean, obviously there's so many different books and resources and all of it. And I just, but I remember that sentence so much because I think it speaks completely to what you were saying about like doing the work is different to receiving information and kind of like ticking information yes. off. Um, yeah, I don't know. And it just, I think, especially obviously last year, like we saw so many campaigns where it was like doing the work, but it was exactly that social media, um, tokenism, right. um, that and like yeah I, I I feel like I kept hearing your voice in my head and it was just like and it was just like I can see you reading the book not doing the book <laughs> right right and I think it's because people think that information equals transformation and it doesn't mm. right transformation absolutely requires information um it's hard to know what to do if you don't actually know the lay of the land if you get what I mean like if you don't mm -hmm. actually understand what racism is the context of what we're speaking about right when you don't have that information a lot of times you have people coming in and wanting to be white saviors wanting to save black and brown people and you know um be this uh benevolent hero that's come in to save the day right so it's the information is important to be able to give you a context of what's actually going on but then you actually need to pair that with action and the 
thing about my book is that absolutely what you said, I repeat again and again, this isn't just a book that you read, it's a book that you do. And I love, I mean, we just launched a book club, right? Good Ancestor Book Club. I love reading books. Like I am constantly reading many books at once. Um, But some books require you to actually engage with them in order to have the effect that it needs to have. And when you just read Me and White Supremacy and you don't do it, you are stimulated intellectually. You know, you have a mental understanding of these issues. You might even have an emotional reaction, um, but it's safe still Mm. because there's still a distance between what's being talked about in the book and what your actions have been throughout your life. And so it's, it's easy to say, okay, I'm reading these concepts. I understand them. I understand racism. Racism is very bad and it's part of our lives, but it's not me. It's those people because I don't do these things. And until you put pen to paper and actually begin to answer the reflective journaling prompts and begin to look at not, am I racist, but how am I racist? How have Mm -hmm. I been racist in ways that I don't even understand? How is white supremacy a part of my life in ways that have been shielded from me, right? Like uh, Peggy McIntosh, who talks about uh, white uh, privilege, talks about it being this invisible knapsack, right? That has all of these like maps and guidebooks and um, cheat codes and everything to help you to get through life. Um, but you take it for granted because you don't even know you're wearing it. And so it's it helps you to see the oxygen that you're breathing in, um, but as something that's in you, not as something that's just out there. And I think until people cross that bridge, it's still, it's, I think they get to feel like they're doing the work and they get to feel like they're part of movement for change while changing nothing at Mm. all. Yeah. And I think that what you're saying about, especially about, yeah, information and, and taking things on and maybe having an emotional reaction, but not being deeply changed and moved. That is something that we see a lot and especially on social media and things like that. Like, um, there was an article where Angela Davis was being um, interviewed by Yara Shahidi and she talked about how we're, she's seeing a lot of people getting um, like informed about things, but not really deeply educated and moved and changed by them. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that's why, yeah, like active learning and active change is so important and taking the time to, to reflect on things and not just move on to the next thing really quickly. Cause really often I feel like a lot of us want to just jump to the next thing and move on straight away. But there is such an importance of sitting with discomfort. And what you're saying is like sitting with the awareness of, of how these systems impact us and how maybe like we not even maybe how many of us benefit um, in different ways um, from these systems that harm other people. Um, and that is like a messy, a messy process that I think we don't really want to extremely, dive into a lot of the time. Extremely messy and exhausting right like it's and and mm-hmm. you just kind of like the, the 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 human part of us that um right because we understand that there's race is not a biological fact it's a social construct right and so mm-hmm. uh while we talk about race 
Um, and it's important to talk about it because we're still living within the construct of racism, of uh, the, sorry, the, the realities of racism. The, the truth is, is that we're all human beings and we have very similar reactions to many of the same things, which is um, when we are asked to be uncomfortable, we don't want to do it. We want to be comfortable. Right. And so mm. asking people to look in the mirror and look at the shadow, look at the part of themselves they don't want to see, look at the actions that they've taken that they are ashamed of or the beliefs that they have inside of themselves that they didn't even know are there or maybe know mm. are there, but know are really ugly and violent. Um, that's really, really hard. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to acknowledge that because it's I, you know, I do say in, in my work, ra yes, it's hard, but dealing with racism is harder. And that's absolutely mm -hmm. true. Absolutely mm -hmm. true. But it's still hard as for, for us as human beings to do any kind of transformation work like this. Mm -hmm. And I think we are really trying our best, all of us, each day, um, to do what we can do to get through the, each day. Um, while also trying to create change, right? Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that we see, I mean, Joe, you talked about like the things that were going on in the summer of last year with the protests. And what we saw really, really quickly was people like wanting to buy every single book on race and racism, wanting to follow every black, um, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> leader, influencer, right? Mm -hmm. Thinker that they could um inundating themselves and social media with all of these posts and things and then within weeks burning out and um you know it's 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 kind of, i mean it makes me kind of roll my eyes but it's also like yeah well of course you're going to burn out if you're going to deal with this like this is just a problem that showed up today and you're going to fix it today mm -hmm. right this is a problem mm -hmm. that has been going on for centuries and therefore the work that we do will continue on for generations. Mm -hmm. So you need to do mm -hmm. your part right now and there's absolutely a sense of urgency that we have to approach this with, but not to the point where we burn ourselves out, right? Or to the point where we think that we can solve, like I have gotten rid of the notion that it can be solved within my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Right. Because mm -hmm. I just think it's not helpful for me to think that way. Yeah. Because it then puts this expectation that I then have to basically kill myself in this lifetime in order to make it a reality. And I have mm -hmm. to take on all of the and we have to take on all of the trauma and the intergenerational pain of centuries and transform it now within this single lifetime. It's just not possible, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. we can absolutely do our part right now. And I think that's so important. And that's why I talk about this concept of being a good ancestor, which is having a real sense of mindfulness and intentionality about the value of your life and understanding that who you are and what you do in your lifetime and the time that you're given will impact people for generations mm -hmm. to come. Right. And so you can be, mm -hmm. you can let that impact be whatever it could be. Right. And just say, I, I'm just here to live my life now. And whatever happens after it happens, it's nothing to do with me. Or you can say, I'm choosing to make choices about the way that I show up in the world that I hope 
will have a positive impact for those who will come after I'm gone. Um, because we're one chapter in the story of our humanity, the many, many chapters that make up the book of our humanity. We are one chapter and our chapter matters. And we got to give, we got to give it all in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I guess also it is, I can't remember who spoke to this. Um, so I would have to find and put it then in the show notes, but, um, you know, they spoke about how, I, I guess it is like white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy of wanting to do it all mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. and completing the work within, you know, and I guess it also speaks to white saviorism of like, oh, I can do it all like right now, overnight, you know, and I'm going to complete the 28 book in, in one night and then I've done it. Right. And, um, and yeah, like, I guess, you know, like thinking about the long-term struggles and actually being, I guess, courageous even to think of it can't happen. I, it can't happen all in my lifetime mm. and actually facing up to that. because I think that is really like somewhat heartbreaking <laughs> in, mm. you know, in many ways yeah. about the, like looking at the challenges that we are yes. fighting against, that we are fighting for all of this and actually being honest with ourselves and, and knowing that, okay, we might, we might, you know, lead the way and create new pathways and all of this, but so, yeah, so I guess my question then following up from that is like, how do you sustain yourself in this mm. work, in this world? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, this is one of my uh, favorite things to talk about because I started writing about, writing and talking about race and white supremacy in 2017 um, in the wake of the Charlottesville um, uh, protests, uh, rallies, um, and the violence that happened there. And prior to that, I had never like publicly written about, never publicly written about race or white supremacy. Um, and wasn't thinking anything would really come after doing that. It was just something that I felt very, I just remember seeing like these images of these men marching and the violence and the hatred in their eyes and thinking I, there's something I want to say. And I wrote this article called, I need to talk to spiritual white women about white supremacy and was very scared to publish it, um, especially with that title, which uh, is funny. When I started writing the that article, the sort of working title at the top was Black Lives Matter. And then when I finished, I was like, okay, God, like, what do I call this article? And I listened and that was the title that came. And I was like, mm. Don't make me call it that. Like, <laughs> like, first of all, I mean, this is, and it's not even that long ago, but in 2017, like, you can't call white people white people. Like, they'll lose mm -hmm. their minds, right? And then, like, white women, and then that next to white supremacy, like, this is going to be uh, a shit show, basically, right? Like, it's, it's, <laughs> But it was like, no, this is the title. That's what you have to call it. Um, and I'm very, I believe that when you receive guidance like that, especially when you ask for it, but when you receive divine guidance like that, you have to be obedient to it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was obedient to it and I put it out into the world, but thinking, okay, like probably what's going to happen is I'm going to lose like some followers. I want to lose some, maybe some clients even, right? I was uh, life coaching at the time. And Uh, the opposite happened, which is that it went super, super viral. And um, I was completely unprepared, completely, completely unprepared. 
within like hours, you know, I had hundreds of comments, hundreds of DMs and emails. And some of them were, um, some of them were like, thank you for saying this. Like, this is something that's been in my heart for a really long time. And I didn't have the words to, to say it. And I really thank you for that. But a lot of them were the complete opposite of that. Um, which was very upset, very angry people. And it went far beyond the people that I thought it would go to. It went, it like, I had people responding and I was like, but this isn't even addressed to you. Do you know what I mean? Like, why mm -hmm, are you responding mm -hmm. to this? They were very angry. And I had to, um, I, I didn't have like a team at the time or anything. It was just me. Um, I had to rope in a friend and be like, can, can I'm going to give you like the, password to my email can you can you filter my email please um because going into my inbox is really triggering because i don't know mm -hmm. if i open an email if i'm going to be complimented for writing this or i'm going to be like called a racial slur like i don't know every time mm -hmm. um and so i had to learn very very quickly how to have boundaries because when you are a black woman and you say things about race and white supremacy in a very direct way. I mean, even in an mm -hmm. indirect way, honestly, when you say anything, right, when you show up as a black woman in the world and you're clear in yourself and you're clear in your message and what you want to say, it often provokes a response of, um, it's, it's kind of like a range of response, right? So I would get like either the very extreme, like, attacks, like the very like extremist versions of racism, right? But then on the other spectrum would be very condescending, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, you don't really know what you're saying or this isn't helpful for you to mm -hmm. say. This is, if you want us to listen to what you're saying, you should say it this way instead. <laughs> okay. I, sorry, my face is just like very expressive because <laughs> I'm like, you're just telling back, I've had the exact same experiences right. of, of all of this, yeah. The, especially the condescending messages that are like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how you should have said this right. better. Right. Um, and I'm like, I don't, cool. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. And, and when you're not used to having, I mean, I, I'm a highly sensitive introvert. I'm not used to having the spotlight on me in that way. And I don't actually desire it either. And so it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and I had to learn very, very quickly how to take care of myself. Um, within months of that article, I was writing and talking every day with white people online about white supremacy. <laughs> and it was exhausting. And I, again, I wasn't speaking with like outright racists. I was speaking with mm -hmm. spiritual white women who ran yoga studios and did um, Reiki healings and, you know, all that mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, that kind of crew, um, who up until that point, like I'd been in business programs with them. They had been, mm. you know, they were, um, not necessarily friends, but people that, you know, I had, had talked to and we'd always had conversations. It was always fine. Um, except for when you talk about race mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. within months I was almost completely burnt out. And I, I mean, it just gives me chills because I still remember seeing pictures of myself from that time. And like all the light had gone from my eyes and I looked, I just looked haggard. Like I just looked like I was going through something really, really hard. Um, and I 
wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating well. It was impacting how I show up at home with my family. Um, and the sense of anger, like nonstop anger was all consuming. And I mean, there's absolutely something to be said for righteous rage and what it can ignite and how it can fuel us and how it can help us to say what needs to be said. But for me, allowing it to run unrestricted and leaving no space for anything else almost destroyed me. Mm. I just didn't know, like, I did not recognize me anymore. And to the point where it felt like being joyful was like this huge indulgence that if I was joyful or at ease or relaxed, that I wasn't being committed to the work. Mm. And um, thankfully, you know, I had the... um, I had the the inner wisdom to be able to seek help. And I started working um, with a mentor and started doing some inner work around like healing my healing myself, right? And and figuring out like mm-hmm. how can I do this work that I'm being called to do, but do it without destroying myself? Because that doesn't seem like that should be the aim of this work, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. that I as a black woman should become destroyed through trying mm-hmm. to bring healing and liberation, that just seems really, really wrong. Um, and it mm-hmm. seems like I'm being complicit actually in, in oppression mm-hmm. and in white supremacy. And so I had to do the work and I continue to do the, to do the work on what it looks like to center myself in mm-hmm. my life, outside of even my work, in my life, me, Layla, um, how it looks like to center myself, how it looks like to love myself, how it looks like to interrogate how white supremacy was inside of me as well, right? And the Mm -hmm. beliefs I had Mm -hmm. about myself and what I thought I was allowed to have access to and how I thought I was allowed to feel and think about myself. Um, And that continues to be like, when I think about like, what is my personal anti-racism work? That's a huge part of it is Mm -hmm. self-love. And I know that there's a lot of, there's, there's a the the Audre Lorde um, quote that is about like joy is an act of of resistance, um, mm. and I actually although Audre Lorde is I love her <laughs> so much and <laughs> I you know her and Octavia Butler I you know I I love them so much but that's actually mm. one thing that's one quote that actually doesn't resonate with me um, mm. that joy is an act of resistance because it joy is something that. I am allowed to have access to, I don't have to, it doesn't have to be used as a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that is my birthright. I, I deserve it mm-hmm. just because I'm here and just because I exist. And it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be in opposition to any anything that happens to me. And so learning to navigate, like how to do this really hard work, right? Have very difficult conversations, um, right? <laughs> Right about like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about and working on the young readers edition of Me and White Supremacy. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so how do I explain this really, really horrific, horrible thing to young people mm-hmm. um, and not just, again, feel all consumed with rage that I even have to explain this to them um, mm-hmm. and simultaneously still stay in my center as someone who um, wants to live 
free now. Like I want to live free now. I don't want to wait to that time later. Cause like I said, I accept it. It's not necessarily going to happen in my lifetime. So I have to live it now. Like it's a reality mm-hmm. now. Um, and that's something that I, that I navigate a lot. And the, you know, I have a really, I have a lot of practices around checking in with myself. You know, I review the end of each of my days. I review the end of my weeks. I review the end of my months. And I constantly asking myself what I need. And um, I have this, uh, like, uh, I have these four words and they have, they're on my phone as well so that I remember them and on my iPad. Um, but my team also knows them, which is in everything I do, I want to feel ease, grace, flow, and glow, Right. And if those things are missing, if they're, if I, if I'm feeling struggle, right. If I'm feeling stuck, if I'm feeling like, again, that feeling of all consuming, um, rage is taking over, then I have decentered myself and I need to put myself back on my, like back on my throne, right? Like back on, like mm. I am number one. Am I okay? Am I setting up my life and the way that I do my work in a way that, feeds me or am I setting it up in a way that where I'm setting myself up as like a sacrificial lamb who has to do all of this work so that other people can can get the healing no I should be the first one I should be the Mm -hmm. very first recipient I deserve right like the little black girl in me Mm -hmm. deserves everything the black woman in me deserves everything the black elder that I will become you know god willing deserves everything and I live from that space first and do everything from that perspective, um, which isn't easy because I've been socialized like many black women and, and black and brown people to not put myself first. So it's a constant, that's why I have to be constantly checking in, right? Because it's like, this is a, um, the socialization of inferiority it was with me for most of my life. This is something new that I'm having to consciously practice. And if I'm tired or if I'm, you know, not taken care of, it's easy to revert to old ways. And I have to be very conscious of that and sort of say, okay, yep. (laughs) It's kind of like meditation, right? Like, oh, you've wandered off. You need to bring yourself back. Um, and 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 that's a practice that I try to live. resonated so much with all of what you said and I think all of it was such an important reminder for myself and I'm sure that people who are listening like this is absolutely invaluable what you're saying and especially around like living and enjoying life now as well um because there's actually a tweet that I saw today that I'll just read that reminded me of this because they said I'd like to believe that my ancestors dreamed of leisure and pleasure. Yes. When we lift up acad- academia and corporate aspirations as our ancestors' wildest dreams, we do their imaginations a disservice. I don't think people who are forced to work day in and day out dreamed of getting a job. And this was like something that really resonated with me. I was like, yes, like I'm allowed leisure and, and pleasure. And it doesn't have to be, um, as you were saying, and this is something that Joe checks me on a lot, is like, it doesn't have to be in contrary to something. It doesn't have to be resistance mm-hmm. always. Like, 
we should also just experience joy and freedom. And I, I just think what you're saying there like resonated with me so much. And I'm sure that, and you've just shared so much wisdom and I'm just so grateful to be sharing space with you. Honestly, every time that you speak, I'm like, wow, this, <laughs> you know your stuff, you're on it. There's a reason that your books are a very big bestseller. Um, <laughs> but um, one thing that I also wanted to touch on, um, especially around like, you're not only just having to care for yourself and you're talking about how you're trying to work out how to communicate these things and these traumatic experiences and this rage to young people as well and you also have tiny humans of your own mm-hmm. um and you have kids um, and I just wanted to sorry I just realized I had to translate what tiny humans meant um <laughs> because <laughs> I just say things in strange ways um but I want to know like how in also taking this practice of caring for yourself um how do you balance that with also having to care for other people who are like literally your children and also how to communicate these issues with them and how to prepare them for the world as it is now but also the world as it will be for them in the future um I know that that's like a lot of things all in once but there's something that I'm really interested in because obviously I uh I'm 23 I don't have kids yet um maybe one day I will um but I, I have so much admiration for people who are doing this work and also have children to look at it to me that's like mind-boggling <laughs> like, I'm yeah. like how <laughs> well it's but it to me it's mind-boggling that you do all the things that you do Michaela and you're studying like I'm just like how 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 is she doing it this is, yeah um <laughs> but you know no one knows how she does no one it. knows we don't know um so I first of all I want to say that when it comes to raising my kids my daughter is 11 my son is six um I I am not raising them alone. I have a village with me who are helping, mm-hmm. you know, and we are raising them together. You know, myself, my husband, um, we have full-time help. We also have my parents who live very close by and who from the time my kids were born um, take my kids every weekend. <laughs> like my kids are ne- not here at the weekends. Uh, they're at their grandparents' house and are very involved. I mean, it's a very like, African way of raising kids, right? Which is the opposite of what my mom had, um, because she was she was an immigrant to Wales from uh, from East Africa, and didn't have like her mom or dad didn't have any sisters with her, and my dad works in worked at sea. So he was always away. She basically like pretty much raised us as a single parent, even though she wasn't a single parent. And we were just talking about it last night. And she's like, I just don't know how I did it. Like, I I really don't know how I did it. And I said, you know, she said at the time, you probably thought I was like horrible because she was so strict. (laughs) She was so like (laughs) on top of us. You know, she was so strict. But I look back now and I'm like, as a, as a child, I didn't get it. As an adult, I'm like, I don't know how you did it. And, um, and you raised incredible kids. Right. And Mm. when we talk about like, we are our ancestors wildest dreams, like I know my mom would not have wanted for me to be able to, to have to do that too, to, Mm -hmm. to have to raise my kids alone. And so she's very involved. My parents are very involved and we have that support. When it comes to having conversations with them about the work that I do and, you know, about these, about these topics, right? It's, it's something that like every parent is like, you don't want to do it. Like you don't want to have to do it, but you know that you have to do it. 
And even though we live in a we live in a Qatar, we live in a very multicultural society. I'm still raising black kids who are living in a world that is anti-black. So mm. it is a huge disservice for me not to have these conversations with them from an early age um, and give not give them the language of how to talk about race and racism in nuanced ways. So I do mm. have these conversations with them, but I don't have them like they're this big talk. I have them as, and this is what I tell, you know, this is what I advise parents to do as well, is don't think about it as this big, scary talk that you need to sit them down and talk to them about the realities of the world. Um, because that's intimi intimidating for you. It's scary for them. And then you leave that conversation feeling like you've terrified them. And they leave that conversation feeling like, I don't know what to do with this information. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm a child, right? Like I, I don't have the power to do anything about it. Um, instead, I am constantly looking for ways to help them to see and understand how these things are a part of our lives, right? And with kids, like what I do is I have conversations with them about like what's actually happening. So, you know, movies that they watch, TV shows or um interactions that we have um, with other people or pointing out to them different dynamics. And, you know, my son is um, still at that age where he's trying to understand, like, how do we know when someone is black versus when they're something else? Mm -hmm. Because unlike me, I went to a school where I was the only black kid. They're going to, they're going, <laughs> and the only <laughs> kid of color, right, in my class. Mm -hmm. They're in classes where there's kids from all over the world. Um, of all different shades. And uh, it's hard for them to understand why somebody's called white when they don't look white, right? <laughs> <laughs> and why somebody who is uh, Indian, for example, isn't black uh, when mm -hmm. they're the, they are about the same, you know, shade of, of skin color. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting having these conversations with him because it, it reflects back to me how much this is all just a construct. Like it's made up, right? Because it doesn't it doesn't actually make sense, right? To 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 kids, um, with my daughter because she's older and we've been having these conversations for longer. She is more nuanced in having um in in having that understanding, and I'm teaching her her especially because she is a black girl that she has right those two intersections right of people are going to treat you this way because you're a girl and because you're a black girl. Mm -hmm. So there's certain things that, again, I don't pile it all on together, right, to frighten her, but as situations show up, right? So for example, um, in, in the past when I've been braiding her hair and you know, she's the only black girl in her class. These are the kids of color, but she's the only black girl there. So she's the only one with braids is what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. And so she goes into class and I'm like, please make sure nobody touches your hair. Because she would tell me in the past that her friends would touch her hair. And I immediately would be like, are you a dog? Mm -hmm. Why are they touching your hair? Do you touch their hair? No, I don't touch their hair. So why are they touching your hair? You tell them that they are not to touch your hair. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so she she's starting to get it now because now I I don't even need to say anything. She's like nobody touch I nobody's touching my hair. You know? <laughs> and I I mean and I'm 37 and I just had someone touch my hair, right? And so mm-hmm. it's something that I'm having to teach her and it breaks my heart that I have to teach her, but at the same time I want to give her I want to give her tools so that she can grow up into a person who knows how to take care of herself mm-hmm. and knows how to honor herself and knows how to respect herself and teach the world how to respect her too. Because it's not going to be given to her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be given to her. With my son, um, like I said, he's he's still quite young, but one of the things that every now and then just, I, you know, my heart like explodes is when I see him wearing a hoodie and, you know, he puts the hood up and I'm like, he's so cute, right? Um, he's, he's just, he's so cute. And we don't live in a place where we have to, we have to fear like police brutality or anything like that. That's not our reality. But I look at him and I'm like, I can keep him safe as long as he lives here. But mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, where he's going to go in the I never knew I was going to live here when I was born and grew, grew, growing up in Wales. I didn't know I was going to live here. He could live anywhere in the world. And now he's going to be seen as cute when he's six foot something wearing a hoodie. He's going to be seen as a threat. And it breaks my heart thinking about how black men don't have the space to be seen as vulnerable, don't have mm-hmm. the space to be seen as safe, you know, don't have to the space to be seen as 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 human beings. They're just seen as these threats to white women and to white womanhood and to non-black people of color. And um I I'm still like I'm just like, don't grow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm still trying to work through that um, because it's, it, I, there's, no, I, there's nothing I can do about mm-hmm. that. Um, but again, what I, what I do hope that I can do is, you know, give him that sense of self-esteem so that he knows who he is and that he knows that he's not what they think he is. He is who he mm-hmm. is, right? Because who he is, I mean, I don't know how he's going to be when he's older, but he's a very sensitive, kind, funny, you know, boy. Like he's he's just he's sweet, um, but he's also Gemini, so he can be really cheeky, right? <laughs> and um, he can be quite stubborn. He loves playing guitar, right? So he's he's like this multifaceted human being. Um, mm. But as he grows up, he will be treated differently than the way that I see him. And, and that breaks my heart um, mm-hmm. because, again, until, until things change, until there isn't this uh, visceral gut reaction of fear when a black man is seen, right? Unless, mm-hmm. Until we change through the generations this um, visceral fear of blackness, like that's, that's going to be there. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I can do what I can do, but we, the world needs to change. I've definitely had... Um similar feelings about my brother when because he's my younger brother like him growing up as well so obviously in in different ways like I definitely resonated with that and like I think especially when I 
gained more awareness of how racism works on a structural level growing up. Um, yeah. There was a point at which I was like, can my brother stop growing, please? And can he just stay where he is now? And there is right. so much to be said on, on that point of like, um, of yeah, how black men, their whole like identity gets, or of who they are as an, as an individual human being gets erased um, as soon as they become a man in so many ways and as soon as they like grow older and how and not even and not even a man right like not Mm, like mm -hmm. like Trayvon Martin was treated like he was a man he was a child Mm, mm -hmm. you know uh it's a very early age that black children start to be treated as adults as black adults um and as a black as black parents like we want to protect we want them to have their childhoods for as long as they are actually children um Mm. And, you know, depending on where you live, um, that just doesn't happen. And it's and it's just not right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, um, yeah, I guess you alluded to that just now. And, you know, like when do even children, black children are like, like made made seen into adults? Um, Yes. You know, boys, girls, obviously uh, non-binary children. And I guess for, you know, for um, white kids. Um, and their parents having that, that one talk possibly oftentimes, obviously also not because otherwise we wouldn't be here where we are, but, um, you know, like that's again, like the, like the structural racism, even within that of like, you know, um, my, my, my white children are too young to have these conversations. We'll talk about it later. Whereas, as you just described, like you don't have the choice to even just talk about and wanting to protect yeah your children and um the way you just said also about like you know let them teach them to know who they are yes. rather than what the world sees them to be yes and yeah i don't know like hearing you say that like that just gave me chills because you know mm. that's and i guess it also speaks to your own journey of healing and recentering yourself and all that you do of you know who am i in compared to what the world is telling me and what i have internalized yeah. and what i'm working through and yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's something that I think many black parents and and parents of color have to do is not only raise their kids, which is a whole like it's a whole job, right? <laughs> like just to raise <laughs> just to raise your child, but also to raise them um where they have a strong sense of self-identity and self-pride and self-respect. Um and um you know, having to walk them through incidents of racism from a very young age like when parents say when white parents say you know I don't want to talk to my child or I don't feel comfortable because I feel like they're really young but most black kids and kids of color experience their first act of racism when they are very young from those very same white kids Mm -hmm. so your kids are not too young because they're already talking about race um Mm -hmm. and they've already you know we start noticing racial differences like different skin color tones different eye colors like things like that from a very young age right Mm -hmm. and we start making meanings about those things also at a very young age and unless parents act to interrupt the status quo the status quo being this idea of white superiority and black and brown inferiority unless that is consciously interrupted, right? Because think about it, like everything they're seeing around them is telling them 
the norm is white people, the standard is white people, um, who is valuable is white, the teachers are white, right? The people on TV are white, like everything is telling them that. And so they're making, they're very young and they're making, their their minds are making sense of the world. And the sense that is being made is, oh, okay, so a standard person is a white person. That's what it means to be normal. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be like me. Um, That's what I should strive to look like. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, until and unless white parents and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking about being a parent. So white parents come in and, and actively, like, disrupt that and plant different seeds instead, they are going to grow up and say things like, I don't want to play with you because I don't like how your skin looks. I don't like how your hair looks. I think you're smelly. I think your skin looks like poop, right? Like all of these things are going to come up because it's the natural, you know, consequence of believing that white is what is normal and what is nice, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have to have these conversations whether we want to or not. The conversations that we're going to be having are very different depending on the racial background that we have and the racial background of our children. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is a big disservice to our children and to humanity not to be having those conversations. Because, you know, you talked about like the innocence, we were talking about the adultification of black kids. That doesn't, like, white Adults are treated with the innocence of white children. Mm-hmm. Right? Black kids are mm. treated as black adults, but white adults are treated as having the same innocence of, as white children. As an example, right? Dylan Roof and the horrific massacre um, that he enacted, and then being driven to Burger King for a meal before being taken to the police station because he was hungry. Mm -hmm. Right? He's not seen as a threat in the same way it would have been seen if he were a black man. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have even made it to the police station. He would have been on the ground, knee on his neck. Mm -hmm. Right? So this is... This is just the reality of the world that we live in. And when we are, the work that I'm doing, right? So the me and white supremacy is about kind of like helping adults who have lived with a lifetime of this conditioning try to undo it now, right? Which is important. It is important to do. But having those conversations with young kids is actually going to create a, a greater change because they will grow up having a greater sense of empathy, having a greater understanding of what it means to be white or what it means to be black and what it means to be together and what it means to be apart and what it means to show up as, um, as you said, Michaela, active citizens, right? Having the courage to speak out when they see something and it's wrong, right? Like being able to understand the very subtle ways that racial aggressions take place and calling it out Mm. when it happens and being able to have conversations with each other that are not just about like, you're a racist. Like I would never do that, but you did the right, like the way we see adults doing it. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But actually I hope, right. Being able to have a conversation that is more transformative. um, And that Mm -hmm. is about um, respecting the dignity and humanity of all, of all the people in that situation. Mm. Yeah, because it's kind of like in in medicine, we talk about how we don't want to just be treating 
Mm. the symptoms when someone has a disease we don't want to just be treating the downstream things what we need to try and do more which is something that medicine doesn't do that well but we need to do more is look at the upstream problems like what has caused these issues that we're seeing later on rather than just constantly treating the results and that's why like I think it's just so amazing that you're writing a guide for kids as well because that's something that like I wish had had existed when I was a kid and that other kids could have participated mm-hmm. in and that I could have even participated in to understand what was happening because I think a lot of the time a lot of in my experience at least like being a black kid in a very white area um I sometimes didn't know what was happening around me right. um and you wouldn't even have the, the words to articulate it and so you're so right that starting with kids is a, a way to to prevent these issues happening in the future and also to prevent people getting into positions of power while still holding these views and never having challenged them. Right. And if instead we start before them, before they even get into these positions of power and also before, like when kids are kids, you're much more malleable and you're much softer. That's right. Um, you have less, you, you, yeah, you don't have this sense of like um, fear that in doing this work, you will ha- you will somehow be destroyed, right? Because yes, mm-hmm. as adults, we have very firm identities, right? Like we've we've spent a lifetime building up an identity, mm-hmm. and work like this mm-hmm. that I do is really about breaking that apart and saying, is that really your identity, or is that something that you believe because you've been conditioned into white supremacy? Mm-hmm. And that's very hard to do because when you see it then you then you start asking yourself how much of me is actually real right and and mm. you kind of have this like existential crisis i had this I, I mean with interrogating for myself like how white supremacy was internalized in me and seeing that a huge part of like my constant sense of striving and wanting to feel successful and wanting to like never wanting to be seen as making a mistake, right? And never feeling comfortable being like vulnerable or letting my guard down was just fear, this like huge fear of um, if I'm myself, then that can be used against me. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the space to be anything but this mask right and and that you put up the mask for so long that even when you realize it's a mask you still hold on to it because you don't know who you are underneath it it's been mm-hmm. so long since you've seen that part of yourself that you actually don't know what's underneath there you don't know if you like it right mm-hmm. um you don't know it, like it's awkward and it's hard and um and that's why i have a lot of um i i give myself a lot of grace because I think we all deserve grace. And it's why I can Mm -hmm. have a lot of grace for people doing this work because I know it's hard. Um, And we're we're literally trying to change ourselves on a cellular level and then having that have a, this is very woo-woo, but having that have like a spiritual after effect for the generations that come afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, It's super, super hard, but you know, in doing that work, we get to rewrite everything. We get to decide who we want to be, right? And I feel like, especially in this time now, we are, like, those questions have become more urgent. 
with the pandemic, with the climate crisis, right? With all the police brutality, everything, all the injustices, it's like it's becoming non-negotiable for us to look at this. Mm. And and what you're saying about how this um like leaves some sort of like spiritual legacy for the people who are coming after us as well. And how you also how you talk about ancestors so much and being a good ancestor and that idea. Um I'm really interested to know, and I think this might be something we start asking every guest as well, is like, what kind of future would you be envisioning as like the best the best possible future? I know that's a big question, or what, what are maybe a few things that you're envisioning for that? Um, because, yeah, there's so much importance, and this is something that Joe challenges me on a lot, is to imagine that future, but yeah. also to like take parts of that future and live them now, as you were saying before, and realise that you deserve to live some parts of that beautiful, amazing, perfect future right now. Um, and I, I also find it really moving to hear other people's futures because mm. it shouldn't just be kind of one future that we're looking towards. There yeah. should be so many different ones. Um, and so hearing from other people's like perspectives is always just really motivating for me and inspiring. I think that, uh, so I was interviewed um, for a Dutch documentary last year and it was about a post-racist world. And they asked me the same thing, like, what does a post-racist world look like? And I was like, it's such a huge question that I'm actually really overwhelmed <laughs> by it, right? And it was like, oh, you know, because it's like the entire way of living would change and how we consider ourselves as human beings and how we are together in, you know, in community and what our um, institutions and systems look like would be entirely different. Um, so to take, to kind of remove myself from that feeling of overwhelm. Um, the way that I think about it really is, I don't know what the world will look like. I don't know what the systems, the institutions will look like, mm -hmm. but what I know that I want is for all black indigenous people of color to be able to feel like as they're living their life, that they are able to live in the full dignity of their humanity. Mm -hmm. that they are human beings just like every other person for them to know it within themselves and for it to be reflected in how the world treats them. And, you know, that's not a tangible thing, but it's, it's, um, it will come about as a result of how this, how society is structured and how we treat mm -hmm. each other and how, and the work that we do within ourselves to reclaim ourselves. Um, and I think that's just very reflective that, that the work that I do is always about the personal. I come from a personal growth life coaching background. And, and so that's how I approach everything that I do is what is the inner work that needs to be done so that we can have the outer world that we want. Mm. And when we are living in the full dignity of our humanity, there's no, there's nothing that is, um, I'm, there's nothing that we that we can say that I'm not allowed to have that. That's not for me. I won't be treated the same way as they will be. Um, my life will have to be harder, right? That's just gone, right? Mm -hmm. Like black parents are not having to have conversations with their kids about how to stay safe, how to protect themselves. Um, People of color broadly, you know, indigenous people, people of color, black people, um, feel like their cultures, their spiritual traditions um, are being respected, are being honored, are not being stolen. 
apologies are being made for harm that has been done individually and collectively. Like there's a, there is a mass healing. That is the way that I see it. And I believe it's possible uh, because it has to be possible. That's the only way we all, that's the only way we save ourselves is that we all, we all have to get free. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I, as, as far away as that future seems, or as far away from our current reality, as it seems, I think it's so important for us to hold the vision nonetheless. Right. So in uh, Joe, you're talking about how you've been reading Octavia Butler and in her parable books, right. The protagonist in that book is like, I hold this vision that man, you know, human beings will leave this planet and go go to Mars, right? And yeah. and people are like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right? And and that isn't even what's important right now. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to live. We're just trying to get through each day. Um, but she just held on to that vision. And it's so important. Like when I think about the ancestors who came before us who have done revolutionary work, activism work, um, it's because I think that they held that they held that vision in in their eyes as well. That's the world that we're that we're wor- working towards, and I think that when we can have that understanding, then we can then we live it now, right? So I strive to live in the fullness and of, of my humanity, which means that. I have done a lot of work to let go of, I have to be perfect. I have mm-hmm. to um, not let them, you know, find out that I'm an imposter, right? I have to like take all the boxes, right? I have to make sure that I never slip or never make a mistake. Like I've had to do the work to release all of that because that is not living in the dignity of your humanity. That is oppressing mm-hmm. yourself from a, from mm-hmm. a belief that who you inherently are is inferior. Mm. So I live it now so that it can be an example to my children and it can be an example, hopefully to other people and to people who come after we're gone. And I often think of black kids when I'm thinking about this, like I want them, that's what I want for them. I want Mm. them to be able to live the reality now and not wait for it to be handed to them. Because you can't give me my freedom, it's mine. Right? You can't give me my humanity, it's mine. The realities of how the world is set up right now doesn't reflect that. But you'll need to catch up with me. I don't need to meet you where you're at, right? Like you need to come and (laughs) meet me where I'm at because I'm living free and you need to come join me here. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I think about it. Are you enjoying this podcast? Um, we really hope that you are. The Yikes podcast um, is able to happen mostly because of the financial support from our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Yeah, I mean, Michaela sounds like a super duper advertising capitalist girl, but actually we're two anti-capitalist babes in a capitalist world. And um, by you supporting like the show, um, it just generally sustains it. It allows us to like pay our guests that... Uh, now and then come on the show and it allows us to do you know much more community work and be able to support different charities and just generally you know make this make this 
thing happened. Yeah, and if you don't know what Patreon is, because I think a lot of people might not know, it is basically a platform that allows you to support creators or podcasts or different kind of groups that you really like um, and you can financially support the, their work directly um, and it kind of stops us having to rely on things like ads which are quite annoying yeah um <laughs> so on patreon on the x podcast patreon there are different um tiers that you can subscribe to so they start from just three pounds a month and then kind of go up from there um for the five pounds a month one you get a bonus episode every single week um which is just us chatting about a different thing that's just happened in the news or something personal about our lives um they're much more kind of intimate those episodes um and we really enjoy making them we do q and a's as well over on the patreon and it's just another kind of space that we can interact with you guys and we really love it and we're so grateful for our patrons who have made this show possible up until now and if you'd like to become someone who supports this podcast if you have the ability to do that um then you can check out our patreon in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash the yikes podcast um and you can check out the different tiers there and sign up to support this show we thank you so much for your support so far and we hope that you're enjoying this episode that is just all so, so beautiful and like I hope you know, but I'm sure you know that so you've changed so many people's lives. You've changed my life. You've changed Joe's life. I know. Sorry to speak yeah. for you, Joe. Um, you've Not changed so many sure. people's lives. And there are so many people who who look to you and you are forming this world and you are giving people dignity mm. back. I'm actually quite get, getting quite Thank emotional, you. actually, even like <laughs> thinking about this like idea of just living in the wholeness of yourself. And it's, it's, mm. it is sad that that makes me so emotional because it feels like this great, beautiful, amazing dream that like people just get to have their full dignity but you're giving people glimpses of that now and you're giving people parts of that now and allowing people space to live in some of that now. And I think that is just, I just like think that is amazing. And I really hope that you know that deeply um, because yeah, the work that you do Mm. is, is so important. Um, And the words that you say and the words that you write, like completely change lives and are so important. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And I, I stand on the, the shoulders, right, of of all those who came before me, who who did that, who did exactly that in a world mm. that was even less accepting and even more dangerous mm. of who they were. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's the I think you talked you talked about this in the interview that we did, right? It's like each generation passing the baton on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, I read Black women writers a lot because in their words, I find freedom. I find possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I find my humanity. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think I was allowed to be that or say that, right? Or do that. But they're saying you can. So I'm going to try it out. <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel that about um, Audre Lorde's work. And especially when mm-hmm. she talks about um, yeah, the importance of just living in your full self and living in your f- like the fullness of the yeah. joy wherever you can get it. And like, I definitely feel very similar about, like for me, reading like black women's work, especially black women who've been activists or liberators or whatever. Yeah. Um, that for me is like a glimpse of freedom and that gives me some sort of freedom. Cause it's almost as if I'm like, my ancestors are giving me the permission to do this yes. in this weird way. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really beautiful. That kind of, can, and that's why I think, sorry that I'm like rambling on, but like, I think books are so beautiful because it's a way of us communicating with these ancestors that have come before us and with these people that are all over the world and having some sort of human connection. Um, yeah. 
and discourse, even though it is me reading a page, there is such, there's a conversation that's going on there and that moves us from within. No, I mean, that's, that's one of my, like, when I think about what is the legacy that I want to leave behind, like, I want to leave behind a stack of books. That is one like concrete thing that I know I want to leave behind because when I read through all of Audre Lorde's books and all of Octavia's, Octavia Butler's books, and currently I'm on a journey of reading Toni Morrison's book, books, Mm. um, it is such a blessing that they were able to use their life um, to to put it into this concrete thing so that even though they're gone, uh, their essence is still here. Their wisdom mm-hmm. is still here. Their message is still here. Their love is still here. Um, we get to experience it every time we read their words. And I know, for example, like with Sister Citizen, um, not Sister Citizen, Sister Outsider, Sorry, I was talking about mm-hmm. Sister Citizen yesterday with my husband, Melissa Harris Perry's book. <laughs> <laughs> Sister Outsider. Um, I turn to it as a kind of like, you know, black woman's Bible. Like I open it when I'm lost or when I'm feeling like I don't know how to have courage in this moment or I don't know how to show up as myself in this moment. And I read her words and I'm like, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because, Mm. you know, when she was writing those words, she was going through shit like she was going through stuff. Mm. Right. And and she worked through it and came to these truths. And I'm like, yeah, I you you may be you may have been going through this decades ago. I'm going through it today, but your words are still as relevant today as they were then. And I'm so grateful Mm. for that. So that's one of my things that I hope that I can, I hope I can live a long life (laughs) so I can write many books um, and leave that behind for other people. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I think that's a beautiful, like, kind of note to end on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing, you know, your vision and for the future and generally also, of course, being on our podcast and all the work and all that you are. Um, but I think, you know, our visions for futures are often deeply personal. So yes. um, thank you for sharing that with us. And actually, you know, I do like as you were sharing, I also just thought like what how much of it is a testimony to you that you, you know, you were saying I, I just think of healing and I just think of the community and dignity and sovereignty of just people choosing what they can do rather than the institutions and the systems like and mm-hmm. You know, because all of that it is just created, but the dignity and the like sovereignty and mm. of and humanity, like that is the essence of, you know, like I guess futures and collective liberation. And yeah, just thank you for sharing that. It's thank you. D- deeply inspiring. And I'm so grateful for you to have come on the pod. Like Michaela and I are so deeply like honored and inspired by you. Um and yeah, everyone obviously go buy the book <laughs> do you, the if work you if you haven't if you follow me on instagram you haven't bought the book i'm confused do you do like <laughs> I, I we are asking you once so again touched. to buy the book <laughs> like we'll we'll put the um on a serious note we will put the link in the um yeah. the Spotify and the general show notes wherever you're listening to this yeah. Um, and we honestly can't recommend it more. And do have a listen to Layla's podcast, Good Ancestor Podcast, yes. because it is just so beautiful. And if you've really enjoyed like what Layla said in here, um, she's an incredible interviewer and gets things out of guests that I think are just really beautiful. And that's what you want 
from a good interviewer is someone just knowing the right questions to ask, but also getting, making it into this emotional experience and this almost spiritual experience. That's how I feel when I listen to a lot of those interviews. Mm. Um, So thank you you so much for being here. um, And yeah, we're just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I love this conversation (laughs) so much. Um, And I got to talk about some things that I haven't talked about. I don't think anywhere else. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh, we all hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Um, We've literally just recorded it now. We're just doing a little outro. Mm. Um, I still feel emotional. Like there were so many points in this, like just listening to her, which just, I felt like this like well of just like emotions arise in me. And I'm so, yeah, grateful for her to have shared all that she did with us. Um, And I'm sure everyone's going to, love this and please 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 buy her workbook do her workbook and also listen to her podcast and um as she shared she also just started a book club so um you can also find that and we'll link everything in the show notes this podcast as usual was hosted by myself michaela loach and josephine becker um the sound magic editing engineering all that amazing jazz was done by finley mowitt and you can find the podcast on Instagram at the X podcast. Um, please give the podcast a five star rating as it helps us reach more people um, and helps our work kind of spread even further, which is fab because we all want justice. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I so strange? Anyway, also, uh, <laughs> we all want justice. Yes, uh, we do. Um, also, thanks to our patrons for supporting this work in our mm-hmm. work towards justice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you guys make this happen. So thank you. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>